you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and the moment we have now to gather as your people and fix our eyes on Jesus, Uh, his life, his teaching, his power, his miracles, his promise, and indeed his hope. Lord, for those of us who've perhaps never been to church before, I pray that now um, we might see Jesus for who Jesus truly is. For those of us who've perhaps been to church many times, familiar with this story, would you grip us again? Reveal to us new insights. Enlarge our heart and open our eyes, we pray, Lord. Pray that you'd move now in a very powerful and personal way. And would you do that for our good and would you do that for your glory We pray this in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people said with one super loud voice, amen, amen. Well, wonderful to be with you, uh, City on a Hill, on this very special Sunday. Uh, Thankful to the Lord for Olivia and Bo and the family and friends. Can we thank the Lord again for them coming to cheer them on? Uh, Also very excited that we are heading to the beach on this beautiful summer's day For baptisms, can you believe it? James, Riley, Amy, Joshua, Tim, Olivia, Hilary, Zoe, Josh, Matei, Hugh, and Alexander, all making a public declaration of God's grace. Uh, One of the guys getting baptized uh, DM'd me through Instagram on Friday asking, is there still time? And I want you to know there's still time. So if you want to be baptized this afternoon, if you believe in Jesus, want to give your life to Jesus, uh, there's always time. 
uh, to give our life to Him. So that's happening today at 5.30. Love to see you there. Uh, speaking of good news, uh, last Sunday, we shared a bit of an update about our partnership with Compassion. Uh, we love the work of Compassion, seeking to kind of uh, release children from poverty in Jesus' name. Uh, we put the word out across all of our churches. Uh, great news to share with you today. Uh, we'll actually have about Thursday this week, heard from Compassion, Thanks to you guys, 68 new child sponsorships uh, across City on a Hill. Thank the Lord for that. So that's 711 people who are sponsored, 711 children being released from poverty in Jesus' name. So thank you for your commitment. Thank you for your generosity. And thank you for being a City on a Hill, shining that light uh, of Jesus uh, that the world may know Him. Well, uh, this morning we are continuing, as Emily said, our series looking at the seven signs of Jesus, the seven miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. In week one, uh, we went to a wedding in Cana where Jesus transformed water into wine. Then in week two, we met a royal official who came to Jesus because of his sick son. His son was on the verge of death, and and Jesus uh, declares healing for that young boy, and he is healed and made well. And then last week, uh, we were in Jerusalem uh, at the pool of Bethesda, the house of mercy, where we meet a, a man who's been crippled for 38 years. For 38 years, this this man cannot walk, he cannot stand, he cannot move without the assistance of another. And yet what happens? Jesus seeks him out. Jesus finds him. And with a word, he encourages that man to take up his mat and walk. And John tells us at once, the man is healed. Today, we are looking at the fourth sign in the journey of Jesus. I hope you're hungry because we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. How's that for a dad joke to get us going? I think it's pretty impressive. Why don't you come with me in your Bible to John chapter 6. So beginning in verse 1, John shares the story like this. He says, after this, after his most recent miracles, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with the disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So in setting the stage for this miracle, uh, note the features that John is drawing to our attention. For example, uh, he's noted the large crowd that is now following Jesus, right? That there is a growing popularity around Jesus. People have seen his miracles with their own eyes and they've come out of their homes and they're they're trying to follow him. And it's growing, it's large, John says it's 5,000 people. And actually, it's probably more than 5,000 because in those days, the 5,000 perhaps uh, represented the number of households that were present that day. So actually, we're we're supposed to see perhaps 10, even 20,000 people, 20,000 people of different backgrounds, different worldviews, different ages who've come seeking Jesus. They've seen His miracles, they've seen His power, they've come now to see what Jesus does next. 
And interestingly, this, this note about the 5,000 or the 10 or 20,000 not only clues us in to the growing popularity around Jesus, but actually points us to uh, the credibility and uh, the historical significance of Jesus' life and ministry. Think about it. If you were a gospel writer, if you were John, and you were wanting to fabricate a story about a gospel worker named Jesus, you wouldn't include stories of public miracles like this. Uh, You would like a lot of religions and cults do, tell supernatural stories that happen in secret or hidden, or there's just a few. Why? Because then they can't be tested, they can't be verified. But here, in the Gospel of John, right bang in the middle, you have this huge miracle that didn't just happen in public, but took place before 10,000, 20,000 eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses who, who weren't just alive at the time of the writing of this story, but had the capacity to, to verify it. So why write it in? Why is it that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include this story? Either they're naive and somewhat foolish, or they, along with the crowd of eyewitnesses, believed it was true, that it really happened. The other point to note about this scene is the spiritual backdrop. Did anyone notice the festival that was taking place around this miracle? Anyone want to yell that out for me? The Passover, right? The Passover was taking place. You can see that in verse 4, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Now, for those of you who are new to church, new to the Bible, it's important to realize that the Passover was an annual festival where Jewish people uh, celebrated their deliverance, their rescue from Egypt. God's people were enslaved by a cruel and capricious king, and, and God raises up a leader, a prophet Moses, to be his mouthpiece, to, to rescue Israel, to, to intercede for them. And what we discover in the Passover is that God's judgment comes down upon the Pharaoh and it passes over the people of God that they may be delivered. So it's a celebration of rescue, a celebration of God's deliverance. And yet interestingly, at the time of this story in John, we're in the first century now, and once again, God's people are enslaved to a dominant, oppressive empire. We talked about this last week. I think it was 63 BC that Rome stormed the gates of Jerusalem and had made life incredibly difficult for the people of God. They're being exploited. They're they're having, uh, you know, restrictions imposed on them. Uh, Worship incredibly hard and they're ostracized, all of which to say that when they're celebrating the Passover... Uh, No doubt they're looking back on the days of God's power and deliverance, while at the same time longing for God to deliver His people again, to free them, to save them, to intercede for them. Look then to verse 5. Lifting up His eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards Him, Jesus says to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. 
for some reason, this large crowd have come to Jesus empty-handed. Why have they come empty-handed? Why is it that they don't have food with them? Well, Galilee was a poor region, so perhaps they just didn't have enough money to to scrounge up the, the food that they needed for the travels that were before them. That's quite possible. The other scenario is that they were so excited by what Jesus was doing that they ran out of the house without thinking of something to pack. We don't know why. Either way, John is pointing out to us there are thousands of people who are hungry. And Jesus says, Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread to feed these 5, 10, 20,000 people? Where are we going to get the bread for that? Now, we need to realize that in the first century, bread was the staple center piece of your meal. Uh, They didn't eat meat like we eat meat today. Meat was a luxury. They didn't have processed food and prepackaged foods. They didn't have Uber Eats or DoorDash or anything like that. Bread was at the the heart of your meal. And and, and you needed bread to to survive. Which is why when, when Jesus is talking about our daily needs, he says, give us today our daily what? Bread. Right? Um, how many of you tried no-carb diets? Right, I've tried it. No-carb is basically no fun. Um, it's, it's no good. Oh, my gosh. I, like, I, I still try occasionally. Yesterday, uh, our toaster is busted at home. So Ness had uh, fresh uh, raisin bread. Ness is my wife, I should say, Vanessa. Uh, and, and, and fried it in butter... And, and then off the pan, hot, cooked in butter. I'm like, you know what this needs? Hmm, more butter. <laughs> Beautiful. How many of you would like a delicious cut of fresh bread with double butter right now? Hmm, <laughs> it's anointed. For Israel, people of God, um, bread... Of course, it was what sustained you. But remember for them, it carried spiritual significance as well. The moment Jesus talks about bread, we're thinking spiritual things. What do I mean by that? Well, again, God's people delivered from Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. What is the wilderness? It's a place of desolation. It's a place of isolation. It's a place of need. It's a place of thirst. It's, of course, a place of hunger. And what does the Lord do in their hour of need? He brings manna from heaven. What is manna? Well, essentially, it's like these little lumps of bread. It tasted like honey. And so six days of the week, God's people were out there collecting this manna, a daily reminder that God provides for our needs. And then think about the temple itself. Really interesting to discover this. When they were building the temple, which is like the the house of God, when they were building the temple, the priests were told, here's what I want you to do. At the table of the Lord, right, right before the presence of the Lord, at the table of the Lord, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bake 12 of the best loaves of bread you can bake and place it at the table of the Lord. Why? Why did God? Why, why were they every week up your know, fresh bread in the temple? I'm sure it smelt amazing, but why was it there? 
Because we all know to break bread is a sign of what? Friendship. We draw near to each other at a table. We get to know one another, to laugh, to hang out, to to draw close when we break bread and share a meal. What does that mean? It means that, listen, God didn't just want to provide uh, uh, to meet Israel's physical needs, but also to meet them relationally. God is saying to Israel, I want to do life with you. I want to break bread with you. I want you to commune with me. And that rings true for us today. And so Jesus is here. Thousands of people have come to see what he's going to do next. And he turns to Philip and he's like, Philip, what are we going to do with this? And so verse 7, Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Um, 200 would not be enough. Um, What happens in this moment? Philip realizes (laughs) that they don't have the resources to meet this crowd. Sure, if there had been 20 people, 30 people, maybe they could... There's 10, 20,000 people. Jesus, we don't have the money in our back pocket. There are not enough shops open that could fill this situation. Now, interestingly, did you notice, just before that verse, what John had said? That Jesus had said this to Philip. He'd asked him about the bread and the need. Why? To test him. Now, that's not a test in like a negative sense. At least that's not how I read it. It's it's more a discipleship moment, a training opportunity. Philip, I want you to think about this situation. There are all these hungry people. There is this need here. What are we going to do about it? Philip looks at his back pocket and says, well, we can't do anything. We haven't got enough. Does Philip pass the test? No. (laughs) Why? Why? Because he doesn't realize who he is in the presence of. His eyes are fixed on the size of his problem instead of the size of his God. Now, I I think it's only human to think like Philip thinks and to act like Philip acts, to look at a challenge in life and be overwhelmed by the need. You ever relate? Ever find yourself in a situation and you see a need? And I tell you guys, there's needs everywhere. And it could be a need, in, in, you know, it could be relational, in a relationship. It could be uh, in your workplace. It, it, it could be um, in your finances. Like how many of us are being wrecked by the rising cost of living and wondering, how am I going to get out of this situation? What do I do with this debt, right? Haven't got enough. It could be spiritual, you could be stuck in like a, I don't know, a bad cycle of sin and, or, or maybe there's someone in your life, it doesn't matter what you kind of say, they're just always running from God and you're like, oh, this is too big. Or maybe, maybe it's something you see locally in our city or even globally, right? It doesn't take much to see need. It doesn't take much to see hunger. It doesn't take much to see that we haven't got the resources in our back pocket to make a difference. 
What, what did Philip need to see in that moment? What do we need to see in that moment? We need to see that we are in the presence of Jesus. Philip is in the presence of Jesus, the one who turned water into wine, the one who healed a sick boy with a word. The one who went up to a man who couldn't walk for 38 years and said, pick up your mat, and at once he was healed. We need eyes, not for the size of our problem, but the size of our God. How many of you know that the same Jesus who walked with Philip is the same Jesus alive and at work with us today? What if you were to bring your biggest need to him? What if you were to not fixate your eyes on the difficulties and the obstacles and the challenges, but stand in awe and say, hey, Jesus, I don't know how we're going to feed these 20,000 people, but, but I trust in you. And look at how that plays out in the next verse, verse 6. One of his disciples... Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Um, it was great how uh, Graham shared with us uh, that beautiful moment in the ministry of Jesus where he welcomes kids. And, and he's, he was spot on to say that actually in the first century, this was a time where people dismissed kids. I mean, again, Rome, big authority, power, we're after muscle and might. What are kids, small and weak? And the disciples are wanting to take on the world. What are we going to do with a bunch of kids? And yet Jesus turns that on his head when he talks about the nature of the kingdom. And interestingly, he doesn't just welcome the kids. He actually goes more, uh, goes deeper than that. He says we are to learn from kids. Why? Because of their childlike faith. You want to enter the kingdom? You want to be part? You want to do something significant with your life? Yeah, look to kids and, and just get a glimpse of their childlike faith. What is that? Well, I remember many years ago, I got four kids, and I remember when they were really, really little, and we used to do these like adventures at night, you know, and uh, I remember this one evening that the, 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 the sky was clear, and the moon, it was one of those full moon nights, you know, where it looks like the moon is huge, and I was talking to the kids, I'm like, it's huge, isn't it? But actually, it's really, really far away. I'm like, do you think I can touch it? And they're like, yes. Of course you can, Dad. So here I am, a moron, jumping on the side of the road, trying to touch the moon, <laughs> And the whole time, like, he's getting closer, he's getting closer. Kids see the world in a totally freeing, limitless way. It's a world of possibility. It's a world where the impossible can be achieved. Which is why this, this story of the little boy, I just find so compelling. Um, the little boy, uh, he kind of makes his way through the crowd. <laughs> he makes his way through the crowd, part, uh, past the doubting disciples, and offers 
his little lunchbox to Jesus. Jesus, I see there's a need. I see there are thousands of people here. I don't know, but I know you can do powerful things. I know you can do the miraculous. Maybe you can do something with this. I love the humility in this. I love the optimism and the faith. Now, interestingly, if you read your commentaries on this, you'll know that what the boy has in his lunchbox ain't that impressive. Uh, Barley loaves were like the cheapest bread you could get. It's a poor man's bread. The fish is small, like sardine-sized small. It's a poor boy's lunch. And if you grew up poor, you know that you've got to hang on to what you got, right? Now, by the world standard, I didn't grow up poor, but I certainly wasn't in an affluent home. After my parents' divorce, my mom was working three jobs. Food was a day-to-day reality. I remember my mom working three jobs. One was in like um, waitressing late at night. She'd come home 11.30 at night and we'd kind of wait because she'd sometimes bring a meal from the wedding that she was helping out and we'd wait for that meal. We had a kind relative who every week or so would drop over leftover bread from a bakery And then there were times that I went with my brother or my mum to Coles just to steal what we could so that we'd have a decent meal, right? So if you've you've lived in that experience, you'll know that what this boy has is is valuable. I mean, he would have every, every right, might we say, to look around at thousands of hungry people and go, wow, I better keep this close to me. He doesn't do that. He entrusts it to Jesus. He entrusts it to Jesus. He entrusts it to Jesus knowing that it's actually better in Jesus' hands than his hands. What a way to live. This thing that I've got, this gift, I mean, we don't have fish and loaves with us today, but you've got stuff. You've got time. We've all got the same amount of time. You've got resources, You've got some money, you've got gifts, you've got, like, we've all got these things with us, and it's quite natural if you live in the way of the world to want to stuff them into your back pocket and hold them and store them and build them up and keep them to yourself. Imagine having a mindset where you could take what you had and entrust them to Jesus. Imagine having a mindset where anything you had in your life, whether you worked for it or it was given to you, anything you had, you, you entrusted to Jesus, believing that He could take what you give Him and do immeasurably more than what you could ever think or imagine. Imagine knowing <laughs> that your poor man's lunch could be used to bless thousands and be recorded. <laughs> Look at this, it's recorded in the Bible. Every single gospel, did you know this, doesn't have every miracle, this one is included. So that little boy's up there in heaven somewhere, going, yeah, that was my day. Imagine having that kind of mindset in life. Hey, what I have is better in Jesus' hands than in my hands. Um, so many great uh, and wonderful ministries I get to hear about being part of City on a Hill. Um, 
Emily uh, heads up uh, Greenhouse, actually got to go to the graduation Thursday night. It's just amazing to see um, how God's moving in people's lives and the fruit there. And you'll know that a couple of weeks back, uh, we, we had teams of people from the Greenhouse Discipleship Program visit some of our other churches. And one of the churches I just love that brings me so much encouragement uh, is a church in Whittington. Uh, Pete Stevens heads it up. Um, it's, 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 it's not a particularly large church, but what they do is significant for the kingdom. And it's, you know, it's located in an area which is... You know, one of the poorest actually in Victoria. Uh, so there's a lot of hardship there. There's a lot of uh, struggle and addictions and crime. And again, not a big church, but what they do is significant. And Pete starts with the team there a Tuesday night bread ministry. <laughs> just get some loaves of bread and see if we can connect with people and serve people in a really practical way. And I just, I love hearing Pete share. Evidences of God's grace. And we love to do that across our team and our internal comms. Like, hey, where are you seeing God at work? And uh, I want to I read this one um, from Pete, if I can find it. Oh, yeah. He says, I thought it was a good time for more stories of God's grace in Whittington. Firstly, there is Kaziah, a questioning nominal Muslim man who is a taxi driver. And while driving one of our ladies home from the hospital, he heard the gospel and responded to Jesus then and there. That was a couple of months ago. He's still going strong, and two Sundays ago, we had the pleasure of baptizing him. Then there's the story of Stu, who two months ago was all alone, sharing his life with the bottle and the visiting magpies, which he had daily. He admitted last week that if he weren't so scared of mucking it up, he would have jumped off the bridge ages ago. Now, he's a regular at our Tuesday night bread gatherings. But when he is told that he is is loved and wanted, he struggles to believe it. Even his own family have never told him this. And he wasn't there tonight. It was payday last Friday, so I suspect he's lost in the bottle again. Please pray for him to come back to us. And he comes to Jesus and experiences love and grace like he has never known. Then there's Charles. Two years ago, he was in in a high-speed police chase and faces court next week. But a lot has happened in two years since. He's been through rehab and is still clean. He's found Jesus and is trying to live for him. This is the most significant because his lawyer is telling him to lie to escape the charge, but as a Christian, he knows this is wrong. It's highly likely, therefore, that he will end up in prison again, possibly for an extended period of time. What a way to show your commitment to Jesus. Finally, there is Kerry, another lady who only joined us in the last couple of months, brought along by a couple of ex, our ex-addict ladies to our bread night to pick up some free leftover bakery bread. She immediately felt welcomed and loved and has been coming to church regularly ever since. She's been coming to Alpha and tonight she surrendered her life to Jesus. Pete says this, what started as a need for leftover bread has led to her has led her to feed on the bread of life. Isn't that amazing? Where does all of that start? It starts with men and women of faith who take their bread, their fish, and entrust it into the safe, powerful, merciful hands of Jesus. That inspires me. Challenging, because I like to hold on to what I have. I want to be a guy who can, can give everything I have to Jesus, trusting that he can use it 
to multiply and bless people and see lives changed. Um, and I think about the many women and men at this church who are doing exactly that. Men and women who, who serve. Uh, Graham mentioned the, the, the city kids leaders and volunteers who are serving little ones right now. We have men and women who come in here early to set service up and help out with lights and all of those things and musicians and uh, people on the host team to greet, to encourage. Uh, we have people, men and women, who through the week open up their homes uh, and lead gospel communities to help people uh, encounter the bread of life. We have people praying, interceding throughout the week in the quiet corners of this world, asking that God would intervene and do miraculous things. We have people who anonymously give to help this church go forward, to help God's mission go forward, using whatever money they have, whether it's a lot or a little, offering it into the hands of Jesus, believing that He can take it and use it. I thank the Lord for your example your discipleship, and I want you to know that God takes what we have and uses it to bless people. If you're here today and you're not part of that story, now's the time to get in. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We're not here just to sit on the sideline and watch other people be part of God's story. This is our story. This story is for you. What would it look like for you to step out from that crowd and offer what it is that you have to Jesus? How might He be challenging you today to bring what feels like a little lunchbox, but to give that to Jesus? Let's look then to verse 10. Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And we go to the next verse. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets and fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And then verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus does the miraculous. This large crowd sees what Jesus has done. And we are told that for them this was a sign. And remember throughout this series we've been talking about signs. Why? Because these miracles of Jesus aren't just a flex of His spiritual power. We see His power at work, but they are a sign to you they had to teach us something about who He is. 
We're to see what Jesus has done and, and, and piece this together and recognize God is doing something in our midst. And we're to learn from this. And it's like this crowd begins talking and they realize that this Jesus that they've seen once again is indeed the prophet of God. Now, we don't know what they meant by that. Were they saying that, that, that he's another Moses? Because Moses led him into the wilderness and brought you know, the bread, the manna, and maybe they saw in Jesus another Moses type. That's quite possible. Maybe they saw in Jesus the promised Messiah. Because all through, we talked about this, all through the Old Testament, the, the, the prophets had spoken about a Savior, a Messiah, a Christ who would come and redeem His people. And so there's lots of joy in this scene. They're eating and they're celebrating. They're like, this Jesus is our guy. He's the prophet. He's the one who's come from God. Which is why this final verse is such a plot twist. Verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why has Jesus come into this world? We know that Jesus has come to liberate and save his people. We also know that he is the king, the ruler. So you would expect that the moment that people realize and want to make him king, that he would receive that and welcome that, and yet he withdraws. Why? What is it? You remember at the top, <laughs> I asked the question, what's the spiritual context here? And it's the Passover. And the Passover is, is a time of deliverance, but also a time of sacrifice. The Passover is when God's people had to put forward a sacrificial lamb. It was the blood of the lamb that brought about their deliverance. Jesus is king, but not the king that we might expect who goes into Rome with force. Jesus is not the king that this crowd were looking for who could bring thunder down on the No, this was the king who came to do something far more significant. The king who would redeem us with his blood. Jesus didn't come to start a political revolution. Jesus came to break the bonds of slavery and sin that are upon us all. The truth of the matter is that we are all without Christ, held by sin and the slavery of death itself. The wages of sin is death. And here is Jesus withdrawing. Why? Because his eye is fixed on the cross. The crown that I will wear is a crown of thorns. And I'll do that for my people. I will lay my life down for you, says Jesus. My hope and prayer for you is that you would see the power of Jesus and marvel at his sacrifice. 
see the cross that Jesus went to and know that he embraced that cross with joy, pouring out his blood that the oppression of sin and slavery of death would be broken for all who believe. We're going to celebrate that this afternoon, aren't we? The men and women coming out of water, they're not just celebrating a fresh start. (laughs) They're celebrating life in Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus, listen, you have eternal life. No more condemnation. No more slavery of sin. Yes, there's stumbling and falling and doubts and questions, but you are secure now. Before we finish, and as the band comes up, I, I want you to see what happens on the very next day, because there's a, there's a word that Jesus shares with his disciples that is so very important. You see, after this, this huge miracle, Jesus is having an intimate, personal chat with his closest disciples. So insightful, and he's, he's essentially you know, sharing with them, look, the reason these 10, 20,000 people are following is because they saw the sign. They saw a miracle, and they had their tummies filled. And it's not like that, that, that Jesus didn't want to perform the sign or he's against feeding their hunger, but, but it's clear in his interaction with his disciples that, man, he longs for so much more. That actually when he came, he didn't come just to kind of fill our tummies. He came to redeem our lives. He came to meet us with eternal life. Uh, to satisfy you spiritually, to satisfy you uh, eternally. And it's really interesting, the disciples like they're hanging off his every word. And they're like, well, we want that kind of bread. Not a stale bread. Not a bread that satisfies for a moment. We want the eternal bread, the, the real stuff. And Jesus kind of gives them a window in verse 35. Look at this one verse. Jesus says to them, guys, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look at those words closely. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, I can give you bread. It's much more than that. He says, I am the bread of life. Receive me. Enjoy me. Pursue, be satisfied in me. There's this beautiful um, book that I came across probably about this time last year. It was part of my study on spiritual formation. This beautiful little book um, called Sleeping with Bread. And it's inspired, or at least the opening kind of story, is about uh, children. Uh, end of World War II, lost their house, homes, families, their possessions, their toys, and yet for those who survived had scrambled their way to these refugee camps. And, and little kids, you know, terrified, unsure, uncertain, full of anxiety and fear. And, and as you'd expect, none of these children could sleep. They weren't safe. They were hungry. 
They were full of anxiety. And one of the volunteers in one of these refugee camps had this left-field idea to give each of these kids a loaf of bread to hold on to, to help them sleep. And to their surprise, these little refugee kids, as they held that bread, could close their eyes and find peace. Why? Because the bread represents comfort, security. What's keeping you up at night? What anxieties have you tossing and turning? What challenges keep grabbing at you? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Hold on to me. Receive me. Trust in me. Put your faith in me. We're going to sing now. I'm going to pray for us. So let's stand. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the wonder of your glory in the provision of your grace. Minister to our hearts right now, Lord God, that we might receive you, know you, accept you, and enjoy you, the bread of life. For those of us wrestling with questions and challenges, Lord, help us to pray for a miracle. For those who feel distant, draw near, we pray. Be at work now in this moment of response and worship as we pray, as we sing, that you would get the glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.